Well, good morning, church. Glad you're here this morning. We have been in a series called Rebuild, and as you think about that, hopefully one of the things we've gathered as we've gone through the series is as we walk through the book of Nehemiah, hopefully what we can take away is this. It was not always about rebuilding the walls, was it? I mean, rebuilding the walls was a really, really big deal for Nehemiah. It was what God commissioned me to do. But the book of Nehemiah is so much bigger than that. It's not just about rebuilding walls. It's about rebuilding what? A mindset, right? A mindset of their identity as children of God. A mindset about their purpose in life and a mindset about their mission. And we've said this every week that for us as believers, that's the same mindset that either needs to be rebuilt or built in our lives, especially as we as a church are entering into and continue to walk through, walk through some really historic moments for us with the, the acquisition of the land and future building. I mean, so many exciting things going on in the life of our church. But even in the face of all of that, we must never lose sight of our identity in Christ. We must never lose sight of the purpose that God has given us and the mission that he's called us to. In fact, what we're doing and how we're moving forward to the land should only help accentuate our purpose, and our mission. If you believe that, say amen. amen. And that's kind of where we're at this morning. So we talked about rebuilding as part of our lives. And we said, here's how we begin to rebuild this mindset. We started in week one by saying we need to realign our hearts to God's hearts. Not hope that God would realign to us, but that we would realign our hearts and mind to God's heart and mind. Also, we talked about how we need to respond to the opportunities God puts in front of us. And then we said, if we're going to rebuild this mindset, we need to make sure that we're renewing and reinforcing and refocusing on the purpose and the mission that God has for us. And the purpose God has for us, Jesus made it very clear. Our purpose is to be salt and to be light. Our mission is to go and make disciples, right? That's our purpose and mission. And so as we go through this, one way we do that is by refocusing, reinvesting in the purpose and the mission that God has for us, as well as if we're going to rebuild this mindset, we've got to have a heart that is willing to repent. I don't know about you, but there are times in Doug's life where I'm not completely living up to the purpose and the mission that God has for me. Anybody else like that in the room? And when that happens, there needs to be a heart in us that is willing to repent and to get back on track. And so that's how we rebuild this mindset. Now, the thing we're going to talk about today is this, that what happened once Israel rebuilt this mindset, once they were confident in their identity in the Lord, once they were confident of the, the purpose and the mission that God had for them, what happened in Israel? Well, the word is right here. What's that word? Revival. Okay, that was terrible. What's that word? Revival. I mean, when you read the book of Nehemiah, don't miss this, is that these people that have been in captivity have come back to Jerusalem, the temple's been rebuilt, the walls have been rebuilt, I mean, and when they kind of get this, they acclimate themselves to the, their identity again, their purpose again, and their mission again, revival breaks out. Now, what I mean by revival is this. I don't mean revival is this emotional, warm, fuzzy moment. Revival is when we experience God reviving our love, our allegiance, and our devotion to him. So all throughout today, when you hear me say the word revival, that's what I'm referring to. That there's, there's, there's been a reviving of the love I have for the Lord, the allegiance, and the devotion that I have to him. And that's what we see happen in the nation of Israel. In fact, how many of you can remember as a kid going to church to, to a revival? Anybody remember those? Okay, now, so, no, really, not many of you don't remember that. Okay, well, let me, let me back up. How many of you remember the revivals that would start on Sunday and would end on Wednesday? Anybody remember those? Okay. How many of you remember the week-long revivals? Okay. How many of you remember the revivals that we start and God's going to tell us when we stop? Anybody remember those? 
Yeah, those, those are long revivals, right? And so you're like, God told you to stop a long time before you probably stop. But anyway, we've all been to those revivals. I remember my junior in high school, I had felt called to ministry. I was part of a student ministry trying to, trying to figure this thing out about Jesus. And I went to a revival. Our church had a revival. And there was a guy from First Baptist Church of Raytown that came to preach a revival. It was a Sunday through a Wednesday, and it was Monday night of the revival. And I'll never forget it. He began to tell a story in scripture that I had never heard of before. It was a story of a guy by the name of Mephibosheth. You may have not heard it either. See, there was a guy by David. We know David, right? David and Goliath. David became king of Israel eventually. Well, David had a best friend whose name was Jonathan. And Jonathan was the son of Saul, who was the first king of Israel. And in battle, Saul and Jonathan died. And what was customary was when the king and his kids died in battle and a new king was coming onto the scene, which would have been David, all the family exit the palace. Why? Because the new king is going to take you out. Well, Jonathan had a son whose name was Mephibosheth. And you're going to love this, moms, if you don't know the story. When the nanny grabbed Mephibosheth to flee the palace, guess what she did? She dropped him, right? How many of that's your worst fear as a mother? She dropped him and crippled both of his feet. And so Mephibosheth found himself in a place, a place called Lodabar, which is like trying to find, you know, Christmas on the world map. I mean, it just doesn't belong there. Nobody knows where it's at. And so that's where Mephibosheth was. And one day David is walking the palace, and here's what he says. Is there anybody from the house of Jonathan whom I can show kindness to? And this pastor's telling this story. He's like, you know, David really had a heart because his best friend was Jonathan. Is there anybody that belonged to Jonathan's family that I can reach out and show some kindness to? And the guy said, yeah, there's a guy by the name of Mephibosheth, but he's a cripple. And so David calls him into the palace, and he says, listen, Mephibosheth, I want you to come into the palace. And the first thing Mephibosheth does is, he says, why do you want me? I am a dead dog. I mean, in other words, I'm insignificant. I don't matter. I'm crippled. I can't do anything. Why in the world would you want me? And David then turns to Mephibosheth and offers him a seat at the king's table for the rest of his life. And this pastor is telling this story, and he says, listen, here's what this means for us. He's like, listen, some of you need to realize this morning that you matter to the Lord. You feel like you're insignificant. You feel like you don't matter, but you matter to the Lord. And yes, we're all crippled. What are we crippled with? Sin. Sin that's in our life. And even though there's moments in our life we recognize the sin in our life, we still need to know that God has offered us a seat at his table for all eternity. And in that moment, for the first time in my life, God revived something in Doug that I didn't know that was there. In that moment, realizing with all of my sin, all of my warts, all of my issues, all of my struggles, that God loved me. And that God had a plan for me. I knew I was a Christian. I got saved when I was nine. But there was, for the first time in my life, this thing became real. And God revived in me a love and allegiance and a devotion to him like I'd never had before. Now, here's what I tell that story. That's exactly what's happening to the people of Israel in Nehemiah. They've come to the place where now they have rediscovered and now revival is breaking out. They've rediscovered their identity, their purpose, and their mission, and now revival has broken out. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to read about this revival in chapter 10, 11, and 12. So if you have your Bibles, Nehemiah chapter 10 is where we're going to start. And what I want us to see this morning is this. I want us to see five evidences of how revival broke out in Israel. Like you may say, Doug, okay, I believe you that revival broke out, but what are the evidences that I can see in the passage? Well, there are five things I want you to notice. The first one's found in chapter 10, verse 28 and 29. Here it is. Chapter 10, 28 through 29 says this. The rest of the people 
the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who had separated themselves from the people of the lands of the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all that who had knowledge and understanding, joining with their brothers and nobles, and they enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and to do all the commandments of the Lord and the Lord and his rules and his statutes. Now listen, here's one of the evidences that we see that the church, that Israel had broken out in revival. It was because of their decision to follow God's commands. One of the evidences we have that revival had broken out in the nation of Israel is their decision to follow God's commands. Then what do you mean? Let, let me go back. Did you notice there that he said that they entered into a curse? Did you pick up on that in the passage? Now that means this. They weren't coerced. Their arms weren't twisted. They weren't commanded. They entered into a curse. In other words, the nation of Israel, with all that God had done, voluntarily said, Lord, we are going to enter into a curse. In other words, they were going to take an oath. And they're saying, listen, Lord, okay, if we're going to take this oath. Now, if you break an oath, what would follow the oath? A curse would follow. If you committed to do one thing and you broke it, what followed? A curse followed. So when they entered into this curse and taken this oath, here's what they're saying. Lord, we're willing to enter into this oath with you. And if we break it, we're totally willing to accept whatever curse you bring our way. And if we break it, Lord, we're willing to take whatever discipline you send our way, we're willing to accept that because we so love you and are devoted and are aligning ourselves with you, Lord, that we want to enter into this oath and this curse with you. Now, what was the oath they entered into? An oath to walk in God's law. Did you remember that? Listen to what it says again. It says they entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law. Now, you, if you've been around here long enough, you know this. I love words. I do. I love words. And in the Hebrew there, there's a difference in walking in God's law and keeping God's law. We would all agree that we need to keep God's word, right? Amen? Okay, not very convinced of that one. Amen? Amen. We need to keep God's word. But there's a difference in just keeping it and walking in it. See, keeping it can sometimes lean toward just obligation and duty. But to walk in it means it's part of who I am. Are you with me on that one? So they're saying, look, we're gonna, listen, we're going to take this oath, and we're going to be willing to accept this curse. And the oath is this, Lord, we are going to walk in your laws. It's going to be part of our life. Your laws are not just going to shape our lives. They're going to dictate every relationship, every decision, every moment of our life. Your law is going to dictate that. God, we are going to walk in it. That's why James tells us that we are to walk in the spirit, right? See, there's a difference between duty and obligation and it being a part of your life. And so the oath they took was that we're going to walk in God's law. And then they also said that we're going to observe his commands his rules, and his statutes. In other words, not only are we going to walk in it, we are going to live obediently to it. Now, I'm just telling you, for most of us as believers, this should be like an aha moment. Because most of us spend our lives going, I need to keep God's word, I need to keep God's word, I need to keep God's word. And yes, that is right. But I pray it's deeper than that for you. I pray it's deeper than a checklist of, I did not covet my neighbor's stuff today. 
I pray it's a check, not a checklist of, you know, I didn't murder anybody today. Yeah, I try to love my neighbors myself. I pray that we keep God's word. But more than keeping it, I pray that there's a point in our lives where we begin to walk in God's word. That we begin to walk along his principles and his precepts in our life. That it's not just something we do, but it's who we are, right? And see, one of the, the, for them, revival was reflected and their decision to follow God's commands. And I'm just going to tell you this. If you're sitting out there this morning and you feel like, hey, if I ask you the question, are you experiencing personal revival? Have you, has there been a moment in your life where you feel like you have this revived sense of love and allegiance and devotion to the Lord? And you say, yes, Pastor Doug, yes, I feel that way. Well, listen, it should be reflected in your love and passion to follow and to walk in God's word. And if it's not, you're not experiencing the revival that I'm talking about this morning. And see, for them, revival was reflected and their decision, voluntary decision, to walk in God's commands. Let me give you a second evidence we see in the passage. Skip down to verse 30, the very next verse. It says this, we will not give our daughters to the people of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Here's the second evidence we see. It's not only they had a decision to follow God's commands, but they had a desire for family and personal purity. If there was one thing Israel was not, it was spiritually pure. And here's what I mean. Over and over and over again, Israel fell into idolatry, didn't they? Over and over and over again. They, they would adulterate themselves spiritually all the time. And here's a moment when they are like, I mean, revival's breaking out, and they're saying, Lord, we're going to enter into this oath to, to walk in your commands, to observe your commands. Lord, we've made a decision to follow your word. But not only that, Lord, we are, have a desire for our family and ourselves to be pure. Purity was a premium for them. Now, if you notice there, they said, we're not going to let our daughters marry the people of the land or take daughters for our sons. Here's what they're saying. They're saying, listen, we're so wrapped up about this notion of purity that we want to make sure that our children aren't marrying people of the land and that people of the land aren't marrying our children. Now, you say, well, Doug, that doesn't seem like it's a very big deal. Well, it's a huge deal. Because if you remember all the way back in Joshua, when they entered into the promised land and they were all given their land allotments, there's a lot of things Israel didn't know how to do. So they would go to their neighbors. Hey, Canaanites, we don't know how to farm. Would you teach us how to farm? And the Canaanites, being the great people they were, go, yeah, we'll teach you how to farm. But before we teach you how to farm, you got to worship our gods. Well, it seemed like a trade-off for Israel. So guess what Israel did? Well, we need to learn how to farm. So we'll just compromise and we'll worship their gods so we can learn how to farm. And that's what Israel was with over and over and over again. So when they would intermarry with other, the other people like the Canaanites, the Hittites, all these different people, there was this condition that when you intermarry into those things, eventually you're probably going to find yourself worshiping their gods. And these people are saying, we are going to take parental responsibility and say, we don't want our kids worshiping anybody but Yahweh. So we're going to make sure this doesn't happen. Now, I know what many of you are thinking this morning, going, well, we don't really have that problem Today, right? I would say we have a big problem with it today. And I want to challenge some of you that are parents in the rooms to take up that parental responsibility that has nothing to do with races or ethnicities anymore. But there's a real sense that as believers that we need to guard ourselves. And, and, and for, for those of you that are single, for students or maybe single uh, men and women in the room, listen, there's something about this notion of that we need to have a sense of purity and we need to guard ourselves from entangling ourselves intimately and even in marriage with those 
who don't have faith in Christ. In fact, listen to what 2 Corinthians says. Chapter 6, verse 14. Do not be, what? Unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? And really, Paul continues on that. The point is this, is that there has to be something in us going, okay, we so want to make sure that even in the most amazing relationships of dating or marriage, that we are guarding this sense of purity. And you know, I was a youth pastor for 19 years. And those were some of the most difficult conversations to have with teenagers. It's like, listen, I know he's a hottie patati. I know it. I know that when she walks, man, and she walks by, that you just, you got a hot, I get that. But if she doesn't love Jesus, or if he doesn't love Jesus, you got to be careful. Because I'm telling you, missionary dating usually doesn't work. This notion of, you know, and I've even had people go, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to date a teenager, I'm going to date them with the hopes and the aspirations that somehow I can win them over the Lord. And that does happen sometimes. But I'm going to tell you, it's way easier for them to pull you down in the faith than for you to bring them up in the faith. And I'm just telling you, we have got to do what they did. And we have to have such a sense of purity that as parents, you do, we need to make sure that we're taking some parental responsibilities and making sure that our kids are educated from the notion of not being unequally yoked with unbelievers. Doesn't mean we write those unbelievers off. Doesn't mean we don't love them. But if you're going to partner with them to spend the rest of your life, you want your kids spending the rest of their life with somebody who loves Jesus. Amen? And so that's why one of the evidences we see is that for them, revival was reflected and their desire for purity in all the areas of their life. And the same thing should be true for us. Let me give you another evidence that we see. And it's found in verse 31. And if all, the, it says this, and if the peoples of the land were to bring us goods or grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or a holy day. And we will forego the crops on the seventh year and exaction of every debt. Now, here's what they're saying. We, we, we are going to make this commitment to you, Lord. I mean, the revival was, it was evidence in their life, not only because they made a decision to follow God's commands, not only because they had a desire for purity, but also because they trust that God will provide. Now, did you notice the commitment they made there? Because this is absolutely humongous. Here's the commitment they made. We're going to make sure that when people come to us and try to sell us stuff on the Sabbath day, which by for the Jews and the Israelites just happened to be their day of worship, we're going to make sure that we don't purchase things on that day. Now, would that hurt your business? If you're a businessman, could that hurt your business? Come on, would that hurt your business? Sure it would. And yet, you know, the funny thing is, if you ask Christians, what's your favorite fast food restaurant? What do most Christians say? Just because they, whether they believe it or not, what do they say? And what, you know, and how many times you get up on Sunday morning, I'm going to run by Chick-fil-A, and they're, oh, they're closed, Right? See, somewhere in that organization, that the person in charge said, I, we're going to take a day. We're going to take a Sabbath as a company so that our people can have a free day to go worship their God, and we're going to make sure that they have that opportunity. And you know what? Chick-fil-A is one of the fastest growing and one of the most lucrative fast food chains in all of the world, and I think it's because they've chosen to take a day off. There was a guy when we lived in Tennessee, he was an uh, auto parts owner. His name was Edwin Florida, and he had one of these mom and shop uh, auto parts place. So he's competing with AutoZone, O'Reilly's, I mean, all these places he's competing with. And his business was struggling. I mean, they, I mean all these big box businesses were taken away from him, and he was really struggling. And I remember at church one day, he said, I think I have a plan. I go, what's your plan, Edwin? He goes, we're going to close on Sundays. Now, I'm not the sharpest tool in the tool shed, but I'm thinking, okay, if you're struggling, 
you're really going to struggle, right? If you're cutting an eight or 10 hour day out of business and you're already struggling working seven days a week or having it open seven days a week, how much more are you going to struggle with six days a week? And you know what he found out when he honored God with that and gave his people a Sabbath day? You know what happened? His business exploded. Just exploded. And I'm just saying the whole point is this, that when these people make this commitment to God, they're, they're part of the revival that we see in them is evidence in the fact that they just trusted that God will provide. They said, listen, we're not going to do business on the Sabbath. And then they go on to say, hey, listen, and by the way, forget the Sabbath for a moment. The seventh year, every seventh year, we're just not going to raise crops. Now think about that. That's like saying, hey, listen, 2022, let's just all take the year off. Oh, you said that was 2020, right? You're like, that's, that's the year we took that one. I mean, but that's what it was like. It was like, hey, let's just take the year off. Now, how many of us would want to do that? We'd go, you know, wait a minute. Well, they're going to come shut the water bill off if I do that. They're going to, they're going to take my house away from me. We're going to have to live on the land, and I don't know how to plant anything. I kill everything I plant, so that's not going to work. I mean, there's just all these things that come to mind. But Israel, there was such a spirit of revival in them. There was such a new sense of love and devotion and allegiance to the Lord. They're like, listen, we're going to follow your commands. Yes, we're going to commit to purity, but we're going to commit that we just trust you, God. We trust that you will provide all that we need. And I know in church we talk about that. I know in church we go amen to that. But do we really trust God like that? That God, if I take this step of faith, you're really going to provide everything I need. Israel did that. And then it gets even better. You know, they said every seventh year we're just not going to raise crops. Then they said in the seventh year we're going to forgive everybody who owes us anything. So check this out. We're going to take a day out of the week and we're not going to do business. And the seventh year... We're going to raise no crops, and anybody who owes us anything on that seventh year, we're going to forgive their debt. We're going to say as if the debt never existed. Now, if you read this and you were able to think about their economy today, here's the conclusion all of us would come to. They are crazy. They're crazy. Nobody does that. And I would say people do that. People make those commitments when they truly believe that God is going to provide, right? And see, revival for them is reflected in their trust that God always provides. And here's just a question. Do you believe that this morning? And I know with everything, and you want to say amen to that, but does your life reflect that? I'm not saying you've got to walk out and go, pastor told me to quit my job and God's going to provide. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is too many times in Doug's life, I say that I'm going to trust God. And then if God doesn't operate the way that Doug thinks he needs to, I start helping God out. Anybody else do that? I'm like, God, you must need a little help. Instead of trusting him. These people, for one moment in their history goes, we just believe God's going to do everything we need him to do. Every need we have, God's going to meet it. Let me give you a fourth evidence we see in the passage it's found in verse 32 through 34, then we'll add 39 on. It says this, we also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of God, for the showbread, the regular grain offerings, the regular burnt offerings, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, the sin offerings, to make atonement for Israel, for all the work of the house of God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring into the house of God according to our Father's house at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it was written in the law. 
For the people, verse 39, for the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contributions of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the, are, the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and singers. We will not neglect the house of God. Now here's the fourth evidence we see in the life of Israel is their devotion of their finances to the Lord. Now here's what I find interesting. In the passage I read at the very beginning, they took an oath. Remember that? They took an oath to walk in God's law. But here, if you notice what it says, it says that they took on an obligation. That they committed to an obligation. I find it interesting that they obligate them in, a, in, a, in an area where they have historically neglected him. They obligate themselves in their finances, which is an area that Israel had historically neglected God. If you don't believe me, go read Malachi, you know, chapter 3. What it said, that they were robbing God. But the interesting thing about this passage, this passage has nothing to do with the tithes, does it? Did you hear the word tithe at all in here? In fact, most scholars, when you study this passage, will tell you that for Israel, they were so deep in revival, they took the tithe idea, and it was just like, you know, there, there's no doubt on that. There's no question on it. We don't even have to revisit that because we know that's the right thing to do. So here what they're talking about is giving to the temple of God above the tithe. Now, let me just remind you of a couple of things. What was the tithe of the Old Testament for? Let me give you a couple of things. Number one, it was to do the ministry of the temple of the synagogue. Second thing the tithe was for, it was to take care of the Levites, the priests in the temple, because they did not have a land allotment, they didn't have a way to grow, to grow crops, and so that was what the tithe was for. But what they're talking about here is meeting the needs financially of the temple that's above and beyond the tithe. And so what we see in Israel, one of the, the fruits of revival in them is that they have this devotion of their finances to the Lord. Lord, everything we have belongs to who? It belongs to you, Lord. And I'm just telling you, when you look at them, revival is reflected and their devotion surrounding their finances. And I want you to hear me on this. I heard an old preacher a long time ago say this. He said, you can tell what people are devoted to when you look through their checkbook. Could you say, do you believe that? Sure you do. And a lot of us, it's Publix, right? I mean, so they, I mean, we know what we're devoted to, don't we? And I'm just telling you, if revival has birthed in us, if there's been a sense of reviving of our love, our allegiance, and our devotion to the Lord, it should be reflected in our finances. First and foremost, as a believer, it should be in our tithing to the Lord, right? It should be in our giving to the Lord, our faithful, regular giving to the Lord. Amen? We talked about that in January. But it also should be reflected in our view of our money. It should be reflected in our generosity on things above the tithe. That's what they're dealing with here. And so for us as believers, when we look at this, one of the ways revival is reflected in us is our devotion of our finances to the Lord. Yes, first and foremost to the tithe and giving to the Lord, but also in having a heart that's generous saying, Lord, as you prompt me, I'm willing to give financially to things above the tithe that you want me to give toward. That's what was going on here. In fact, in a couple of weeks, you're gonna, we're going to be talking about this, but from, from April 1st to the end of June, we're going to be challenging our church to give to something. Above the tithe, we're going to challenge us to give toward the land that we're going to be purchasing. And obviously, we know that giving to the land, the more we can raise, the less we have to borrow. When the less we have to borrow, the faster we can begin working toward a building. But when that moment comes and you begin to enter those three months, starting with April 1st, here's what I want from you. I want you to know this. There is no pressure. No one's coming to your house to twist your arm. Nobody's going to catch you on the way out and arm wrestle you. Nobody's going to do that. What we want more than anything else is there'll be a moment that you just pray and say, Lord, if I believe in what you're doing here, what would be my part? 
God, what do you want me to do in this place? How do you want me above what I'm giving to the tithe, to the church, and the ministry? What do you want me to do so that we can have a home as a church? That's what they were experiencing here. That was the heartbeat of Israel, and I hope it's the heartbeat that we have as well. Let me give you the last thing, the last evidence, and it's verse, chapter 11, verse 1 and 2, and it says this. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring out one of the ten that lived in Jerusalem, the holy city, with, uh, while nine of the ten remained in their own towns. And the people blessed all the men who were willing and offered to live in Jerusalem. Now here's what's going on. People in Jerusalem had moved out. They were in captivity. So now they've come back. The city's in disarray. The temple's being built. The walls are being rebuilt. So they would make up camps outside the city of Jerusalem. And now Jerusalem is done. Now it's set up. And they said, listen, here's what we need. Out of all the people here, we need, ratio-wise, we need one out of every ten to go repopulate the city. And what you see in Israel is not this, this moment of going, oh, I don't want to do that. You know, let's, 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 let, let's let John do that. I, I, Randy, you go, buddy. You, you'd be great for the city of John. I'm not going. But you see people instead uproot their lives, uproot their families, say, we're going to relocate because we believe in doing this, we can better fulfill the purpose and the mission that God has for the nation of Israel. And the last evidence we see is their willingness to make a sacrifice. Their willingness to make a sacrifice. These people were willing to uproot everything, to relocate so they could better fulfill the purpose and the mission that God had for them. And it says at the end of the passage, you picked up on it, and everybody celebrated them. Now, I don't know if they celebrated them because like, whoo, better you than me. But I think in the, and the revival spirit they had was they were so thankful that people were willing to step up to the plate. And they had a willingness to sacrifice. And one of the evidence is a revival. Revival is reflected and their sacrifice they made for the purpose and the mission that God had for them. Is the same thing true for us? Is the spirit of revival, of reviving our love, our allegiance, and our devotion to the Lord, is it reflected in our willingness to make some sacrifices? And I'm not talking about finance. I'm not talking about that at all. I'm talking about that moment when you have to drop your fear inconvenience yourself to go share the gospel with somebody. When you have to enter into a situation when you know it's messy and you know it's going to be time consuming and you know it's going to interrupt your life, but you do anyway because you know it's the right thing to do. So no about you, I'm always willing to make sacrifices until the time to make sacrifices comes. Anybody else like that? And then we think we need to pray about it. Listen, these people were willing to sacrifice no matter what the cost. And as you look at Israel, because of that, Revival broke out. Now, revival for them, with all that had happened, revival led to a climactic moment for Israel. It happens in chapter 12. We'll read a small piece of it. But in chapter 12, revival takes a climactic moment where they dedicate the wall and they have a service in the temple. And it was an amazing time. Let's listen to what happened. In chapter 12, verse 43, it says this. And in this moment of worship, in this moment, this, this crazy, awesome moment, it says they offered great sacrifices that day and did what? What's the word? And they what? Say it again. They rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced. And the joy in Jerusalem was heard far away. They, listen, it was a day of singing and rejoicing. And it wasn't like quiet golf clap kind of rejoicing. It was so loud and so powerful that it was heard from far away. Listen, this revival led to a climactic moment of worship in the temple that was filled full of joy. 
It's a time of joy. It also was another time. Look with me in verse 45. It says this, and they performed the service of their God and the services of purification and did the singers and the gatekeepers according to the command of David and his son Solomon. In other words, no one was at a time of rejoicing. It was a time of purifying. It was a time that they were making sure their hearts were aligned with God's heart. That they were realigned and making sure that they were living a way that was honoring and pleasing to the Lord. But it wasn't just that. Look at verse 44. It says this. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributors, the first fruits, and the tithes, to gather unto them the portions required by the law for the priests and the Levites according to the fields and the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. In verse 47, And all the Israel in that day of Zerubbabel and the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for the singers, the gatekeepers that they had set apart, which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. Now listen, here's what's happening. When they had this climactic moment, it was a moment of rejoicing, it was a moment of purifying, and it was also a moment of giving and reallocating. In other words, the, uh, the obligation they had made in the last chapter, now they're fulfilling it. Now they're just being faithful. So when you see Israel, listen, when you see them, we spend all through the book of Nehemiah talking about rebuilding a mindset of identity, purpose, and mission. That's exactly what Israel did. And once it was rebuilt, what did it lead to? It led to revival. And that revival was reflected in their decision, their voluntary decision to walk in God's commands, to walk in God's laws. It was reflected in their desire for purity. It was reflected in the fact that they trusted that God would provide all needs. It was reflected in their devotion of their finances to the Lord. It was reflected in their willingness to make great sacrifices. This was a nation in full throttle revival. Now, I so want that for us as a church, don't you? Just five of you. I, I want that for us as a church, don't you? I, want, I mean, I want there to be such a reviving of our love, our allegiance, and our devotion to the Lord. I want us to be a church that when people pass by, when they rub shoulders with you in Publix or Walmart or wherever you find yourself, that they would say something's different about that person, that there'd be such a spirit of revival that would happen in this place that it would be heard from far regions away, that there would be rejoicing and we'd make sure we're right with God and that we would be a people that are faithful to do all that we promise that we will do. But before this revival can happen, it starts with personal revival. Are you doing that same amen? Before we can have revival corporately, we've got to have revival personally. And so here's the question I ask at the beginning of the message. Are you experiencing personal revival this morning? Do you have a revived love, allegiance, and devotion to the Lord? That's reflected in everything we've talked about today. Your decision to follow his word, your desire for purity, your trust in him, your finances, your willingness to make sacrifices. Is it reflected in that? Are you experiencing personal revival or are you struggling this morning? And you say, Doug, I, I'm not, but I want to. I want to experience what you're talking about. I want there to be a reviving of my love and my allegiance and my devotion to the Lord. Well, let me just tell you where that begins. It begins with the very thing we talked about last week. You remember the word we talked about last week? Repent. Repent. If you're not experiencing it this morning and you're struggling but you want to, where do you start? You start with repentance. Maybe you need to repent over the lack of following his word. 
Maybe you need to repent over the lack of purity that's in your life. Maybe you need to repent over the lack of trusting him. Maybe you need to repent over the lack of being faithful with your finances and you're being greedy. Maybe you need to repent over the lack of being willing to make sacrifices because you find yourself selfish. If we want to experience revival and we're not this morning, it starts with repentance and saying, Lord, I'm doing life my way, but I want to do it your way. And maybe you're here this morning and you would say to me, say, Doug, honestly, I feel like I am experiencing revival. I'm not talking about emotional warm fuzzy, but I feel like I have a revived sense of love, passion, allegiance, and loyalty to God like never before. Here's what I ask us to do. Would you pray for our church then? In fact, in a moment, we're going to sing a song, and I'm going to ask if you feel that way and you're able and you feel safe to do that, I'm going to ask if you would, if you want to join me at the altar and just by yourself begin to pray for our church. Say, Lord, would, would you allow revival to break out in this place? I'm telling you, when revival breaks out, you can't stop it. When revival breaks out, all you want to do is be a part of it. When revival breaks out, it becomes viral in a church life, and I want revival to break out. And if you feel like you're experiencing personal revival, will you join me? And praying for our church, or not just our church, remember these cards we gave out? Would you pray for this family? I have Steve and Debbie Tucker. Would you pray for revival to break out in the families that you have? Who said, Doug, I didn't get one of those cards. We'll just pray for somebody. Well, I don't know their name. We'll just say that person in blonde hair over there. Would you have God, would you have revival break out in their life? As a church, if we feel like we're experiencing personal revival, would we pray for our church and the people of our church to experience revival in their hearts and minds? So if you're struggling this morning, but you desperately want it, it begins with repentance. If you're experiencing personal revival, will you pray with me and join me at this altar and pray for our church to experience revival? Pray for the families that you have that God would do only what God can do. Because I want us to be a church that is revived and making a difference for the kingdom. Amen? Let's pray together. God, I love you. I thank you for today, Lord. And I, I just, I'm so reminded in my heart and in my mind and my life at that moment as a junior in high school, that moment in that revival where you just stirred me like I had never been stirred before. God, you revived something in me. You birthed something in me like I'd never experienced before. And God, I want that for us again as a church. I want us to have a revived sense of love, allegiance, and devotion to you, Lord. I want that. But before it can happen corporately, it has to happen individually. And so, God, I pray for the people in the room today. Those that are believers are saying, you know what? I want revival, but, but I'm struggling. I'm just not there yet. God, would you lean their heart this morning toward repentance? Would they, would they confess to you the areas where they are lacking and, and struggling and, and willing to make a commitment to turn back to you? God, would, would you lead them down the path of repentance today? I believe revival begins with repentance. But God, for some of us in the room that feel like we're experiencing revival in our hearts, in our souls, in our minds, would we have the courage to pray for our church, to pray for the family that we picked up a few weeks ago, to pray that you would break out in their homes, that you would break out in their workplace, that they would have a revived sense of love and loyalty and allegiance to you, Lord? God, we are positioned, you have positioned us, Lord, perfectly in a place surrounded by thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And I believe if a revival were to break out in this 80 by 80 room, it could impact the 3,000 homes that are around us. And God, I believe that can start right now, right here, today. 
So God, just be with us. Help us be faithful to respond as you would lead us. For it's in your precious and your glorious son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together. You just respond. If you need to repent, you stay right there. Do that. If you feel like you're experiencing some personal revival, maybe you're not there yet, but you sense that God has really birthed in you a, a love and a loyalty and a devotion to him, would you just, if you felt comfortable, you don't, if you don't feel comfortable, do it right where your seats are at. If you felt comfortable, would you just maybe, those of you that want to, join me at this altar and say, Lord, I want to see revival break out. How many of you want to see revival break out in our church? I do. I do. So if you feel comfortable doing that, would you just join me as we pray for this body of Christ? Just respond as the Lord might lead you this morning.